0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on what you've been waiting to hear. Adam Miller, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today?
1: I'm good. It's good to be with you.
0: Good. Glad to have you back on the podcast. Glad to have a chance to talk to you again. Uh, I spoke to you a while back. It was after Rube Goldberg's Machine came out, uh, the book you wrote there, and, and really appreciated that work. You've written several since then. Uh, one of my co-hosts, John Young, had you back on the podcast not too long ago, uh, talking about grace and talking about your a uh, book to those who are struggling with faith within the church. Maybe for that one person who's listening, Adam, who has no clue who Adam Miller is, would you mind just giving us maybe a 30-second little synopsis of uh, or bio of who you are?
1: I'm a philosophy professor. I teach at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. Uh, I specialize in contemporary European philosophy and philosophy of religion. I also do work in Mormon studies. Uh, books that your audience may be familiar with in the field of Mormon studies that I've worked on are uh, Rube Goldberg Machines, Essays in Mormon Theology, uh, probably especially Letters to a Young Mormon, uh, and a recent book called Grace is Not God's Backup Plan, which is a kind of freewheeling paraphrase of Paul's letter to the Romans.
0: Yeah, and all three of those books are fabulous. I've got them on my shelf. Uh, really appreciate the work you do uh especially uh, the middle one you talked about there which reaches out to those who who are struggling with with testimony with faith with church history and and I feel like there's a lot of those kinds of people right now not that it's this you know giant mass exodus that some of the critics try to point to but but that there certainly is because of the internet and the accessibility to to complex information. Uh, a lot of people in the church who are having a hard time. I want to start off, Adam, by throwing the question at you. We're doing this series where we're having scholars like yourself on and trying to ask them some some tougher questions that really kind of get at the nuance that some of us kind of hold in the gospel. Uh, the first one I wanted to ask you is the the phrase, the church is true, and and what it means to you. And I want to preface it with this, that that on Fast Sunday, members of the church get up and they they stand up there and they say, I you know I know that the church is true. And I think most of them, and I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, but I think most of them, if asked, what do they mean by that? They would say that the LDS church is the only true and living church upon the earth with which the Lord is well pleased, which is out of the DNC. They would say that it has some level of exclusivity, that it is the only group of people who have priesthood, who have keys, who have authority, who have been called and authorized by God, to carry out his work. And and yet when members of the church seem to struggle a little bit and begin to realize that the church history can be messier than what they grew up thinking and being taught, this phrase begins to kind of crumble a little bit or become a little shaky. I'm hoping that you can help maybe us reframe that. What does it mean to you that the church is true?
1: One of the first things that comes to mind is uh, something that I think President Uchtdorf said uh, recently, uh, he described the restoration as an ongoing process, right? That the, that the restoration is not something that happened in the past. It's not past tense, but it's something that is present and future tense. It's ongoing. And so I think, uh, I would approach understanding what it means to say the church is true, uh, in that same context. The, the saying that the church is true is, uh, that's true. But, uh, in the same way, saying that the restoration is true, the restoration and the church being true, these are, these are things that are in progress, that you and I have to be actively involved in, uh, the hard work of, of making them be true. It's not a kind of default setting, but, but something that, uh, that we have to play an active part in, in making a reality.
0: Do you, so where most members kind of see the church as being, being uh, authorized by God with some special work, and even to go to the extent where we kind of see ourselves as the only players in the game. Is that the view you hold, or do you kind of allow room for, while the church may have some designated role that separates itself from the rest of the world, that the rest of the world also has pieces and parts of carrying out this plan of salvation? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, uh clearly the church has a unique role to play uh in the, god's work as we understand it but i think it's also clearly uh the mormon view that god speaks to his children throughout the world in their own language according to their own customs and traditions and that he has been and continues to work with them uh where they're at with what they've got and that's uh that's not just with us but with everyone
0: in and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you then say that, for instance, um, God's children, some of his children who live on the other side of the globe, who aren't members of the LDS Church, aren't even members of Christianity, maybe they belong to some tribe in the middle of 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 the African uh, uh, you know, the, the surroundings where they're just a tribe out in the middle of nowhere and they've got very little interaction with society. Would you say that – would you see that person as having the same access to God – and that their, their chance, their, their opportunity to get back to Heavenly Father being just as equal on the same, same exact level as a member of the church in good standing, uh, living in, in, you know, Northern Utah.
1: I would say that clearly the infrastructure of the institutional church is extremely important, but I would also say that, uh, that god is certainly not bound to only work within the infrastructure of the church that uh, especially given how limited the infrastructure of the church is in relationship to the vast population of the world i think we can take it for granted that that god is freely at work in the world uh, in places where the end of the church doesn't reach
0: so to kind of maybe hit on the next question adam which is this this phrase that we use at the book of mormon's true And again, to just use fast and testimony meeting kind of as the example, when people stand up and they say the Book of Mormon is true, they're, they're bearing witness, I think most of them would agree, they're bearing witness that what they're trying to say is that the book to them is a historical book, that Lamanites and Nephites are, are real people, that the words written in the Book of Mormon are the words that God told these prophets to write, at least in some cases face to face, and I know that you've hit on this idea before that it's not to, it's not to throw historicity under the bus, but it's almost to kind of set it off to the side. And you've said, look, Moroni in chapter 10 is asking us to pray about the truth of these things. And you tend to kind of imply, at least that's my understanding, you kind of imply that what Moroni is challenging us to do is to ask the truth of the message that's in those pages and not to focus on the historicity. Your thoughts may be expanding on that, and, and correct me where I'm wrong, where do you come out, and, and how do you deal with, and, and what are your thoughts for those who are having a hard time on that question of, is the Book of Mormon true, and what does that mean?
1: Well, I think if we took Moroni uh, as uh, a kind of test case with respect to what we meant by uh, saying that the Book of Mormon is true, I think, I think Moroni would be horrified uh, if he thought that when people were praying, to find out if the book of mormon was true what what they meant was uh is moroni true i think moroni would be horrified by the idea or nephi would be horrified by the idea or or joseph smith would be horrified by the idea that people were praying to know if they were true because i think uh, across the board what makes the what makes these men special is the way that they position themselves as messengers uh and uh we have to have a certain amount of trust in the messenger but the messenger is not the point. The message is the point. And uh, I think Moroni pretty clearly wants us to be asking about whether or not the message is true. And that's the kind of thing that you and I, I think, can get very concrete, very substantial, very practical answer to, such that when I stand up in testimony meeting and say, uh, I believe that the Book of Mormon is true – Uh, What I mean more than anything else is that I'm speaking out of the substance of my own experience that the Book of Mormon has uh, opened me up to a transformative relationship with God. And if the Book of Mormon didn't do that, uh, then why would we care about it anyway, even if it were historical? With respect to the book's historicity, it seems to me, too, that uh, pretty clearly – God could demonstrate without much trouble the book's historicity if he wanted to, but that he has instead uh, intentionally taken the question of its historicity off the table for us. Uh, it's not a question that you and I are in a position to give some kind of definitive answer to. And you, we could, we could read that as God kind of playing a kind of uh, epistemological game with us. To see if we'll believe in something that we don't have good evidence for, but I think it makes a lot more sense uh, in light of God's character to see that not as God playing games with us, but as God trying to kind of clear the field, such that we can focus on what does matter most about the Book of Mormon.
0: Right, and and you hinted at this that there's that culturally we as members of the Church are often getting up and bearing witness. Or speaking in terms of the truthfulness of the messengers, but that really our focus as Latter-day Saints really should be on the message, right?
1: Well, I think that's what the messengers would themselves would want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think unfortunately that, that kind of means that as a whole, we just, we culturally are going to have to come to better grips with what those men, those prophets, because it's almost like we diminish the message by focusing so strongly, even if even if subliminally, on the messengers and whether they were real people, that I think sometimes we as a culture really never dig into the message as deep as we could. Yeah, and sometimes
1: we diminish the messengers themselves by holding them to a kind of unfair standard uh, with respect to who or what they would have to be in order for God to use them as instruments.
0: Yeah, I... I'll share, and I'd love your thoughts on this. And you can you can you know you can uh, defer away from my point. Maybe I'm just going off into kind of crazy land. But one of the things I've thought to kind of teach that idea is Nephi. And when I look at Nephi in the the first book of Nephi, to me he comes off as a very self centered. Even when the angel comes in, in Laman and Lemuel have beaten Nephi and Sam, Nephi's memory is that the angel says, "Why beatest thy brother Nephi?" When in reality, both brothers were smitten, and it's this idea that Nephi comes off as always telling you how good he is and how he will do everything the Lord commands, and he tells you how his brothers murmur all the time. And then Lehi dies. Second Nephi, chapter four, chapter seven. Second in Second Nephi, Lehi passes away after blessing his family. And strangely enough, Nephi records all of this, but doesn't tell us anything about the blessing he got if he even got one, which seems kind of strange and out of place. And and then Nephi all of a sudden breaks down and almost kind of gives us this glimpse of his inner self as he begins to tell you how almost how wicked he is and how easily he gives in to sin. It seems like a very different Nephi than the guy early on who's telling you he keeps all the commandments and he does all that God tells him to do. And I think that very idea should shed light on scripture. And I want to get your thoughts on how we want to make these stories out to be almost like God's whispering in these people's ears. But the reality is... That even if the Book of Mormon is historically true, we ought to give lots of leeway to the imperfections of these men and their biases and their culture and their, their, uh, pride or their, you know, personal awareness of of where they're at in, in life. I mean, all of those things play a role, right?
1: Well, the more, the more seriously we take the historicity of the authors of the Book of Mormon, the more willing we ought to be to invest them with the kind of historical complexity that real historical people have. Right, We ought to be willing to to read Nephi with an eye, not just to the the surface value of what he says at different places in, in his account, but to the overarching complexity of his relationships with his family and his audience that he has in mind and how that fits in with the larger scope of the Book of Mormon. Right, that's the kind of work that we should be willing to do, to the degree that we uh, take Nephi's historicity seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the next one I want to hit on is prophets, and and to give this some some context prophets when when I was taught the discussions I was 17 years old took the missionary discussions missionaries came to my home and they they had those six memorized discussions they went by and the first one you know most of us believe in a supreme being and though we call him by different names we know that God lives and and eventually they got to this part about prophets and they said that we have prophets in the church today like Moses Noah and Abraham if I'm not mistaken those are the three prophets that are used in comparison and when I heard that idea shared what I thought in my head was that Moses, Noah, and Abraham have explicitly told us that they've spoken to God face to face. That there's kind of this definite personal interaction between those three prophets in our Father in Heaven and His Son. And so I, I made this assumption when I joined the church. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, a, an assumption that I made on my own. I think it's one that, that certainly came informed by missionaries, by bishops, by Sunday school teachers and by other members of the ward that prophets literally see God face to face, talk with Him, and then communicate to us what they've said. And in Elder Oaks recently at the Boise Rescue—I'm sure you're familiar with this—but Elder Oaks shared this thought that that prophets and apostles are special witnesses of Christ's name, of His work, of His plan. And then he says, but they are special witnesses of Christ himself in the same way that all members are special witnesses of Christ by being under the influence of the Holy Ghost. And in that quote, I think for some members, it was kind of a step back, like, hmm, it almost feels like they're trying to tell us that these guys don't as a whole, again, I give certainly exception to the rule, but as a whole, these guys aren't speaking to Jesus face to face. And yet it feels like for those who are struggling that the assumption that they were taught and set up was that prophets talk to God face to face and that that was an absolute given. How have you kind of reconciled that? Or maybe you, maybe you never got those assumptions early on, but how have you kind of traversed that particular issue and where are you at today? And and how would you define prophets so that it gives more room for kind of a, kind of the messiness of it all?
1: Well, I'm confident uh, that God speaks through the prophets and apostles of the contemporary church. I don't have any special insider knowledge of what that does or doesn't entail. Um, what matters to me is that from my seat way out far in the audience in the church, uh, I can hear God's voice speaking through their voices. And how or why that works, uh, that's that's above my pay grade. One thing uh, that has helped me and, uh, you know, Missionaries are good at a lot of things, but missionaries are not, uh, known for their capacity for nuance. (laughs) So, we maybe not, maybe not, (laughs) uh, ask too much of them on that score, especially when, you know, the church is filled then also with, with return missionaries slash the people who the missionaries themselves taught. But one of the things that has helped me, uh, is to feel confident, for instance, about a claim that contemporary prophets are just like Biblical prophets is getting to know more about the biblical prophets, right? And what their, what their stories actually looked like and how messy and complicated the story of the biblical prophets is and how often, uh, indirect and peripheral their own contact with God was. But despite it's being often indirect, nonetheless substantial in saving. And I think if we take, if we take the actual biblical accounts of what's going on for those biblical prophets, uh, as our standard, then I think, uh, we have a lot of latitude in understanding what kind of, uh, what kind of channels of communication God may be using with our contemporary prophets and apostles.
0: Right, right. And, uh, I think that's helpful. I think when we when we delve into Moses in in one of the sometimes it's what's not said. So I look at Moses and I look at him leading the Israelites and the Israelites are constantly murmuring and backsliding and it Moses or whoever the author is of the book poses it like, "Hey man, Moses is doing everything left and right with miracles and these people just aren't listening." And yet, I wonder if we were there in the midst of it. If If there would be a lot more of these days on end where Moses does something that frustrates them or says something silly or does something that, that shows his humanness and, and that these guys aren't just, you know, aren't just falling by the wayside because of their own weakness, but rather that them seeing a prophet day in and day out isn't all, uh, manna, in In uh, plates with God's fingers writing on it
1: yeah those those poor Israelites wandering in the wilderness for forty years we don't we don't often give them a very charitable reading,
0: which I think mm-hmm. we could do a better job with, yeah, so let's hit on scripture here for a moment. We kind of run into this we We talked about the Book of Mormon, we're talking about looking at prophets in the Old Testament, for instance, and giving them more leeway, and even the people, as you point out, and I point out the Israelites giving them more leeway um scriptures. One of the things I've had to really come to grips with in the last two or three years is allowing for a lot more figurativeness in scripture. And that's just me personally. I wanted to ask you where you fall. Do you, do you, in your own personal stances on different scriptural stories today, and we don't necessarily have to get into a bunch of specifics, but do you give a lot of leeway for several, if not lots of stories within the Old Testament and maybe even some within the New Testament, to be figurative or allegorical where where they seem to be read literally by most members, but maybe we're missing it?
1: I think in general, when people claim to be reading the scriptures literally, uh, what they actually mean is that they're reading them highly figuratively, such that if we take something like uh, a literal reading of Genesis chapter 1, a literal reading of Genesis chapter 1 would involve... Uh, a clear conception of the world as a as a flat surface covered by a dome above which uh, the massive waters of eternity are held at bay, and when God wants it to rain, He opens the windows literally of the sky, and the water falls down out of the sky because there 's waters above the roof of of the world, etc right That would be a literal reading of for instance Genesis chapter one uh, that's not what people mean, though, when they say a literal reading. When they say a literal reading, what they mean instead is a kind of highly figurative re-reading of that text in light of contemporary scientific expectations about the nature of the universe. Right. So, if you can, if you, for instance, uh, if you can comfortably imagine uh, the Starship Enterprise flying through your version of Genesis chapter one. Then that's, that's not a literal reading of the chapter, right? That is, that is a superly, a super figurative, highly metaphorical re-reading of what the chapter actually says. So on one, so that's one point to make, I think, with respect to literal versus figurative. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we usually use the words in exactly opposite the way we ought to use them in describing the kinds of readings that we're giving. So if we take Genesis chapter 1, for instance, again, as an example, and we were to give a literal reading of that chapter, I think that's great. I think we should give more literal readings of uh, these uh, really ancient texts and see them in their time, in their place, in their context, uh, and really feel for what the world looked like, can really get a feel for what the world looked like from the perspective of the people who are writing it. And I think that that, one, helps us to to understand much better what they're trying to say and why they're trying to say it. And I think that, two, uh, it solves a lot of problems for us as modern readers because we're not forced then to bring our contemporary expectations to bear as a framework for understanding their world as they understood it. Uh, and I think that solves a lot of problems for us if we can be more literal readers and less figurative.
0: I like that. It uh – And maybe just to to push kind of from the other side of that coin, most of us, when we read Genesis chapter one, you're right. If we were to read an absolute literal take on those early chapters, we all, none of us do that. We all kind of pick and choose a different way of kind of reframing that story. I found it interesting, not too long ago, maybe three or four years ago, coming across quotes by leaders within the church, Elder McConkie, President Packer, um, Spencer W. Kimball, and there were a few others, where they start talking about Adam being, or Eve being made from the rib is figurative. Adam being made from the dust of the ground is figurative. Uh, Elder McConkie said, even the trees, the two trees placed in the garden are figurative. And I often, when, when I get into kind of discussions with Latter-day Saints who are struggling and trying to reshape their perspective on this issue, I'll throw that at them and I'll say, you know, once you take away the trees, once you take away the rib, once you take away the dirt becoming someone, you don't really have much of a garden story left, do you? And, and that all of a sudden hits them that the church itself has given them more room, I think, than they originally thought. Of how figurative or literal they they need to take these stories and still be a faithful Latter Day Saint. Does that make sense, or you have any other thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think in general we have a lot more room uh, to think through and around these questions than we assume that we do. If we take if we take Genesis chapter one as an example, just one last time. I mean the uh, the composers of the Book of Genesis, as we have it, include for us at the beginning of the book. Two entirely different creation stories, one in Genesis chapter one and one in Genesis chapter two and three that are not compatible in any way. I mean, they intentionally include two incompatible creation stories in their own account of the creation right off the bat. And you and I should probably take that as a single, as a kind of signal too with respect to, to how we should approach reading those texts and the kind of, uh, flexibility we should uh, allow ourselves and, uh, as we as we try to understand what those texts are trying to teach us.
0: And, and then the church on top of that gives us like three or four more creation stories in the temple and in the Pearl of Great Price. <laughs> right, right. And so all of a sudden we're left with, you know, five or six of these creation stories and and none of them are exactly lined up and they each have differences. And so as we're kind of talking about, the restoration, maybe even more so than just Christianity, the restoration even gives us more room to kind of, Bounce around our own ideas on some of these things. Um, yeah, and I think
1: ahead. I think that's fine. I think you know I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily prioritize either a literal or a figurative approach to the scriptures. I would I would want to prioritize a kind of uh, phenomenological or existential reading of the scriptures, such what the what the such that what the scriptures are above all trying to convey to us is, uh, is, a, is a, certain, a certain kind of comportment, a certain way of being in the world, right? They're trying to introduce us to a certain way of, of seeing our place in the universe and in relationship to God and in relationship to other people that is fundamentally different than the sinful perspective that we, by default, tend to bring to bear on our experience, and that all the different kinds of literal and figurative metaphorical tools they bring to bear, uh, they're all used to the end, uh, of trying to induce in us this kind of first person existential phenomenological connection, uh, with what it looks like from the inside to have that same kind of experience with God that they had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to Push just a little bit more on this this idea of how we interpret scripture. The lots of the okay. So the and again, I'll keep doing this. The average member of the church, and who knows what the average member of the church is, but let's just just use that phrase. The average member of the church would would see any time a leader in scripture speaking, any time Moses is speaking, Noah is speaking. And I get it. If we really want to pick scripture apart, we can show where these folks at times say very human things that can be off, even off base at times. But the average member, again, would see Scripture as being, we have to be completely obedient to what leaders say within Scripture, what prophets and what apostles say within Scripture. And yet, Scripture is also full of stories of God being a very mean person, where God annihilates entire people, an entire group of people, simply because the chosen people are going to battle against them. And so I wanted to see what your thoughts were. Where do you come down on, how do you reconcile, or how do you sift through which of these which of these things coming out of prophets and apostles, their mouths? And again, obviously you know that I'm relating this to present day as well, but let's use the scriptures as the example. How do you go into scriptures and reconcile what is from God and what isn't? And if you say it's all from God, how do you reconcile the hurt and the harm that is done in the name of God within scripture?
1: Uh, well those are, those are 20 really good questions. Uh, (laughs) I think, I mean if we, if we really wanted to induce a kind of wave of faith, faith crises in the church, what we ought to do is have everyone in the church actually read the Old Testament from beginning to end, I think. I think
0: that's the the kind of thing I think that could induce a wave of legitimate uh, faith crises. I think that's why we only spend the same amount of time one year on a book that's like three times bigger (laughs) than any other book, (laughs) so that we can just kind of pass over that stuff.
1: Well, it's such a a hodgepodge, and so much of it fits so poorly with uh, our modern expectations for exactly who God is and exactly how we expect him to work that inevitably we have to just shuffle a lot of it off stage without trying to make any sense of it at all it's just it's just so so weird and so strange and so foreign to our sensibilities so foreign to our experience as people who get up to drive cars uh to work in the morning and have police officers and and come home and watch netflix at night and our biggest problem is that we have too much to eat and we have to stop eating so much that we'll stop being so fat i mean that's it's such a fundamentally different experience, such a radically different world that uh, it can be really hard to put ourselves in the shoes of of the people who are having the kind of experiences that get described uh, in the Old Testament.
0: Right, right. I even one of the other examples I use Elijah when uh, when he's getting mocked by some teenagers, right, and, <laughs> and he 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 calls upon God, prays upon God to to fix this for him and. Out of the woods comes this she-bear that just mauls these kids and kills them. And I think, you know, what are the chances that maybe, just maybe, possibly, this is just a coincidence, right? Uh, Elijah's being mocked. He prays to God. And just by coincidence, this bear comes out of the woods because the kids get too close to the little bear they don't even know is there. And and this <laughs> mother bear kills these two kids. And Elijah's seeing this, right? what's What's his natural reaction is to give God the credit. Because he's just been redeemed by God. Who, who are these kids to mock him? And, and I think sometimes if we just take a step back, like you're saying, and look at these guys and say, look, they're trying to come up with explanations for why things happen and why things go down the way they do. And, and without, without Google, without, uh, without science textbooks, without explanations that delve into so much further today than what they had then, Really, all they're left with is to use God as the explanation, at least at times, and to cut them that much slack, right?
1: Yeah, I think we need, uh, we need to treat these texts with quite a bit of charity, right? It's not just the case that these texts uh, are meant to teach us about charity, but I think it's also the case that these really old, really important, often very strange texts, it's often the case that they're an occasion for us to practice being charitable, uh, in reading them, right, and bringing a kind of a charitable mindset to to being open to worlds and people and times and feelings that may be very, very different from our own.
0: Great. And that's good. Um, historicity of the Church. Let's just, let's just make the assumption you and I both, uh, while we probably do disagree on some things, I think you and I both come from a faithful perspective. We're both... Um, Gonna say, hey, there's room for faith here and that's the direction I'm gonna move in. Assuming historicity of the church is, is true. That, that the church really does have authorization from God. It, it really is carrying out some special work in this dispensation of the gospel. That it really is assigned to hold keys and to preside over saving ordinances. I wanna, I wanna hit on this idea, which is that whenever Whenever folks delve into, at least a chunk of people who are delving into history, they're, they're becoming to grips with complexities and nuance and paradoxes and contradictions. Some kind of shift has to occur for most that get that deep into this. And, and many of them are struggling because that shift feels unnatural. And I think religion in general, Makes that shift out to be kind of a bad thing. It's kind of a backsliding type of of shift that they see it as. The reality is that psychology and, and lots of the social sciences would see these transitions as perfectly normal and and a forward type of thing. I don't I don't necessarily mean that somebody gone through these is better than anybody else, but that that one does kind of progress through these these ways of thinking in. Assimilating information and reconciling things. How have you, uh, Adam Miller? How have you handled that, and and how have you done it in a way that's that seems very comfortable for you, and yet so many in the church are feeling like this deconstruction, reconstruction of their faith is like the most awful thing in the world. And they feel like they're just little by little edging out of the church. How have, how have you now? Na- and again, I'm throwing 20 questions at you in this one. How have you navigated that transition in what, and I'm not going to say it's smooth. Cause I know even, f- you know, you would, I'm sure you would say it's not always been smooth, but how do you, how do you kind of give off that impression that it feels like a smooth transition and it's been comfortable for you? That's
1: a, that's a really good question. Uh... I mean, I'm certainly sympathetic to the difficult position that people uh, sometimes find themselves in, as uh, of, as a result of no choices of their own, they find themselves needing to to rethink in kind of fundamental ways some of the things that they took for granted as being most important to them, and that's that's never easy. And even if uh, in the end uh, it turns out to be worth it, to have been worthwhile, it doesn't make the the experience itself any easier. Uh, in some ways, for me personally, uh, some aspects of of my own changing perspectives on the gospel and on what it means to be a Mormon, I think have been easier, if only because uh, I am a professional philosopher, and I practice all day long, every day, in class and out of class and in my research and in my writing, uh, asking questions that don't have good answers and not expecting really anymore <laughs> for there to be good answers, even to some of our most basic questions about what does it mean for something to be good or what does it mean for something to be real or how can I have confidence in my knowledge about the world, period, let alone my knowledge about the gospel, right? These kinds of basic, uh, fundamental philosophical questions, I've had decades now of, of practice asking them and exposing myself to, uh, to the, to the murky vagueness on the far side of them. Uh, and so in some ways that, you know, just that kind of professional practice may have, have made some kinds of things easier for me, though. Uh, in other ways, I've just, I'm just a regular guy. And, uh, the same kinds of things that are difficult for lots of people are also difficult for me.
0: I think that's good for people to hear. Do you, To bounce off of that, do you think that we, and again, I'm not saying, you know, you know, here, Adam Miller, jump in and tell the church what to do. I'm not trying to do that. But do you think we as a culture, we could probably do, and I'm, I'm going to impose my own belief, but I think we could do a better job. And I want to ask if you th- think so as well or what your thoughts would be. But that we could do a better job of not posing absolutes in how we teach things. So for instance, in in Sunday school maybe, we tell everybody that if they'll pray, if they'll have faith and they'll pray, they will get an answer from God. When oftentimes the reality is a lot messier than that. Some people get answers, some people don't. Some people who pray very little get very dramatic answers. And some people who fast and pray and and, and entrench in trying to obey every commandment get nothing for long periods of their life. Could could we do a better job of maybe posing the gospel as more paradoxical than what it is? Or, or do you think that by doing so, we just cause more harm to a larger group of people?
1: I would say that we as a people, myself included, could do a much better job of planting ourselves in grace and charity and being open and sensitive to the spirit such that we would know when the right thing to say was to draw some kind of dark line in the sand and say, this is absolutely the case, uh, we can't mess around with this, and it, or conversely to know on what occasions uh, we should allow for greater degrees of flexibility and allow for greater degrees of uh, vagueness and grayness. I don't think it's, I don't think it's all or nothing, but I I think we need, I think sometimes what you need is a line in the sand and sometimes what you need is a door that stays open no matter how far the other person wanders away. Uh, but knowing when to draw the line and knowing when to leave the door open, those are things that we're often not very good at on one way or the other because we're not very in tune with the spirit and we're not very firmly planted in grace and charity.
0: Yeah, as you point out, those things require Sensitivity, they require empathy, and, and most importantly, as you just said, it requires to have the Holy Ghost with you. Um, in the church, we often teach, and this maybe is one of those kind of black and white statements, and I get sometimes leaders some leaders will get up and try to make it a little more gray than than others, but we get up and we talk about doctrine. And we talk about doctrine in this kind of absolute way that, you know, doctrine are things that we can count on. They come from God. They're absolutes. They don't change. And yet, as you and I both very well know, in our history, doctrine it has evolved. It has changed. And sometimes it's even done a 180. It, using maybe a couple of examples in the most, I think most poignant is one that's fresh in all of our minds, which is the race and priesthood essay. The brethren in earlier decades, specifically the 1940s taught these theories. That the church today disavows, they've taught these theories as doctrine. There were first presidency letters, there was correspondence with members of the church where they were adamant that, that they were unified on this point, that those were doctrine. And yet, and yet there's been this almost 180 shift. Not, and I, and I pose the same idea to Richard Bushman that not so much that that we say, okay, well, God gave commandment A and then God, you know, shifted his own mind and point of view and decided to give us commandment B, but rather that there's such a difference in those two points of view from the theories being doctrine in the forties to being disavowed today that it, for, for someone like me, I look at it and say one group or the other had to be wrong, that they both couldn't be right about God's mind and will. And, and I know that's a messy question to ask as I kind of frame this into a question, which is, A lot of members in the church right now are struggling with being able to kind of hold their own ground when they disagree on an issue while also trying to stay faithful to the church and to the brethren, but feeling some need on some level on some of these issues to be able to disagree and to dissent. And yet, often the talks and conference tend to kind of draw that line that that's really not safe and that the right thing to do is to obey. We even had... President Benson's 14 fundamentals reemphasize again this year in the priesthood manual and Relief Society manual, where we're taught again that uh, the prophet would never lead us astray, and that we ought to follow him even if we think he's wrong. And yet history bears out that it's way more, again, paradoxical or messy than that. How do you navigate that that arena of holding to your own integrity on issues, but but also being faithful to the church and to the brethren. And I, I know that's a tricky question. And I know I'm again, 20 questions probably in there, but I think it's an important one for those who are having a hard time.
1: Well, if we take for granted that, that the restoration is ongoing and that the church is a work in progress, a work that we ourselves are called to be a part of. And I think uh, it makes a lot of sense, uh, regardless of doubts that we might have about particular questions to uh, to lead, as the brethren encourage us to do, to lead with loyalty to the church as an institution and to lead with faith in God that even as we negotiate our way through the hard work uh, of completing the restoration uh, and fashioning ourselves more and more in the image of Christ, both individually and collectively, that God can work with our weakness and that in the end, uh, he can make lemonade even out of our lemons.
0: Do do you allow? I mean, do you see room for members? And I'll, I'll I'll kind of try to step outside of you. Do you see room for other members who just feel absolutely torn on? You know, pick any social issue right now being discussed in the church. I won't get into specifics here in this question, but room for members of the church to kind of say, "Look, I I love the brethren. I respect where they're at on this issue. I." I, I totally get, you know, where they're coming from. I I just can't be, I can't hold that same ground because my, my experience is different. My, um, yeah. what I, what I've seen and been a part of and, and how I've seen it affect others. It just, it forces me to take some other place. Do you see room for folks like that to, to be still faithful members of the church, but, and if so i mean any thoughts or or suggestions on how to navigate those those really tense and difficult kinds of paths that we all kind of walk i think at times
1: yes i think there's i think there's room for most of us most of the time to stay uh i mean i don't i don't have any i don't have any particularly good advice about how to do it apart from Apart from basic Christian advice to, uh, to lead with faith and to emphasize charity and to try hard to put ourselves in other people's shoes, especially people that we disagree with and see from their perspective what's valuable and what they're saying, even if we may continue to disagree with them. I think it's often helpful... Uh, to make sure that we're putting people first. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, as an undergraduate hearing, uh, Bob Millett say that, uh, people are more important than principles. I was a little bit shocked by that. But, uh, you know, the older I get, the more right I think he was to say that. Uh, and in lots of ways that, that may be the key to To staying a part of the church and and being as productive a part of the church as it's possible for us to be in in healing both our own relationships and healing the church itself.
0: Yeah. I like that. People are more important than relationships. I think, I think you're right that as we all get older, I should say say all, I never, should never qualify everyone. Well, we're all
1: getting older, that part's for sure.
0: Yeah, well yeah, but as we all, as we get older, I think many of us are drawn to change whatever small or large that step is in that direction and to not be so dogmatic and to not be so rigid, but to try and make some room for the person next to us who perhaps sees something just a little differently. I want to ask you on one specific issue, the LGBT issue, because it's one that I'm really sensitive to and it's one that I care a whole lot about. Um, I, I know the church has has drawn some lines and some leaders even made statements that some of these lines just will never change and we're just going to have to come to grips with that. But I also see the other side of the coin where because of seeing or feeling those lines, some parents have felt a need to take either their, the church's side or their child's side. And they take the church's side at times. Some take the child's side at times, but, but when they take the church's side, sometimes – kids are kicked out of their homes. Some of these kids who grow up feeling like there's, you know, Mormonism is the truth. And yet when faced with the fact that they're never going to fit in to that box that Mormonism creates for salvation and fraternity and for, for what a, a person looks and, and acts like and, and, Often depression happens. uh, Sometimes suicide occurs, and my heart goes out to each of those cases. Any thoughts? Because I, I I get it. I think you know I'm sensitive to the fact that lines have been drawn, and I don't want to. I don't want to say, "Hey, church, you've got to change this." But on some level, too, maybe is it possible that God's calling for probably both far ends of the spectrum to maybe recognize that we all have maybe something to learn or some some direction to move more towards the middle? Does that make sense?
1: When I think about my own life, uh, when I look around at the kind of, uh, experiences that my contemporaries have, have my, have had my fellow graduate students, my, my colleagues, uh, even the, the students that, uh, that I work with in college on a daily basis and I, I see something of their experience. It, it, it hits me very hard and very clearly that one of uh, the most substantial blessings I have ever been given in my life is the law of chastity. There is no doubt uh, in my mind that some of the deepest and richest blessings I have enjoyed are a direct result of the law of chastity. Now the key, I think, with the law of chastity, as with every law, the key is that that law uh, is only working in the way that God wants it to To the degree that it is a vehicle for grace and charity. To the degree that we turn laws around and use them as weapons, as tools for separating, uh, people from one another, then the law of chastity is not doing the kind of work that God, uh, means it to be doing. But to the degree that we allow those laws to be vehicles for caring and concern and charity, uh, that's the degree to which those laws find the kind of fulfillment, uh, that God intends them to express. And I think that's, that's the kind of thing that's gonna have to guide us on our way forward, I think, as we, uh, work out in the context of the 21st century what it means to be a human being and what it means to be, uh, a human being who doesn't have a lot of choice with respect to the kind of sexuality they experience. Heterosexual or homosexual. And so we're going to have to we're going to have to hang on, I think, very very tightly to the law of chastity. But in the process, we're going to have to make sure that uh, that that law is doing the kind of work that God wants it to do, rather than uh, being a kind of wedge that divides us.
0: That it that it, as you would, I'm sure, say, that it extends grace to all of His children.
1: That's the only way. Otherwise, uh, as Paul makes clear, the law is just a vehicle of sin.
0: Right. Right. Could you, could you first, and I'm I'm not suggesting we change. I'm not suggesting we don't. I'm simply saying, could you see a day where, where homosexual men and women who are in legal marriages, could you see a day that they could possibly, you know, be baptized or men could hold the Aaronic priesthood or do you see room in, in, in Mormon theology for us to kind of take that, that shift regardless of how long it takes to get there?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I I think of that, I think of that passage, uh, in which Joseph Smith claimed that God is far more liberal in his views and boundless in his mercies than we are prepared to believe and receive. Uh, and I'm sure that that part's true, uh, but I'm not sure about the ways in which that will find expression.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Let me, uh, let me wrap up and let you get back to, uh, uh, so I know you're busy and you've got other things going on. The uh, final question I want to ask you is what are you working on right now? What can, what can Latter-day Saints kind of see from Adam Miller on the horizon and, and, uh, and be kind of ready for as maybe you're working on, uh, some new books, some new project. What, uh, what can you tell us about what you're doing right now?
1: Uh, I direct a project called the Mormon Theology Seminar that uh, organizes short-term collaborative readings of Mormon scripture. And we've been doing this for uh about eight years now and uh there are a whole slew, four, five, six volumes uh of proceedings from these seminars that will be published in the near future with uh the Neil A. Maxwell Institute uh for religious scholarship. So that's something to look at look for on the horizon. Um Otherwise most of my projects at the moment are are more academic in character and have less to do with Mormon studies.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Always appreciate uh, your voice. I think you you have an important voice within Mormonism and and a lot of people are drawn to it because I think it it offers some comfort, some some ways in which to kind of reframe and, and rethink some things within LDS history, LDS theology. Uh, Adam Miller, appreciate you being on the podcast today and and just look forward to all the things that you'll you know you'll do and and talk about uh, within Mormonism going forward appreciate your time It's my pleasure I hope it's helpful thank you